Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell again today. This week, we're going to be talking a bit about the NFL draft, first looking at the results of this weekend's proceedings, and then looking specifically at uh, players who still had eligibility but decided to, to go into the draft but went undrafted, and just looking at some of the dynamics around that. And then finally, we're going to look at coaching contracts, especially in the context of Dabo Sweeney's recent $93 million contract extension. Um, so with that, that's what we're going to be going into today. Uh, how are you doing today, John? I'm not doing as well as Dabo Sweeney is, as he's counting that $93 million he just signed, but I'm doing pretty well regardless. Awesome. Let's uh, dive into our first topic today, uh, looking at the NFL draft and... Uh, you know, we took a bit of an approach last week of looking at some of those late round players who uh, were probably going to be great value and a lot of people were going to be, you know, discounting them at their peril. Um, I think we called it the Russell Wilson All-Stars. As I was thinking about it more, we could have also just as very well called it the Tom Brady All-Stars. True. Um, good point. It was another one that came up for me as we were thinking about it. But looking at some of those players, I, I think that's where I really wanted to start today, looking at some of these late-round steals that you think are going to be a great contribution in the next couple of years for an NFL team. I think the first one that stuck out to me, just looking at things from an Alabama lens, was Deontay Thompson falling to the fifth round. He was the mm-hmm. first pick of the fifth round all throughout the college football season. He was mocked as either a first-round or early second-round pick. And it's always weird, Zach, every year in the NFL draft, you hear about you don't hear about any of this until, like, players start slipping. And it's like, oh, yeah, they had a, a some medical injury history with a knee that teams are worried about. Like, why aren't these stories coming out ahead of time? Like, it always just feels like a, a weird excuse uh, that, that pops up. I, Deontay Thompson had no knee injuries or anything that I recall at Alabama, and then he's got some degenerate knee injury now that people are actually super worried about, and that caused him to drop to round five. I think that's the guy that jumped out most to me that went a lot later than I would have expected, and I think he's going to end up having a, a really good long career. And then Charles Aminahu mm. at Texas, who measured in like fantastically at the combine i mean he's got a massive wingspan he's big strong fast he lit up the senior bowl in mobile and then he somehow falls all the way to the fifth round i wouldn't be surprised if he's a a contributor early on for the texans who really i think got a steal picking him up so i mean there's a lot of guys like that i think um uh travion williams as a six-round pick as a running back's got a really good shot at making an impact early on uh, but several of our Russell Wilson All-Stars went later, and some even went undrafted, which is kind of a, a surprise, and we'll get more into that later. But who were some of the guys that you thought maybe went a little too low? You know, I was looking at it, and obviously um, receivers and running backs are one of those things where teams take flyers late, and they <laughs> tend to undervalue the position unless you see somebody who's really hyped up. And so, you know, a couple of the backs, especially who had great college production, but really just didn't tip the scales for the pros were guys in like the seventh round, like Mike Weber, Miles Gaskin. I thought both of them would have, you know, 
their production certainly merited getting a look a bit higher, but I think just the nature of that position itself meant that they were going to be undervalued relative to, you know, trying to get other um, needs met by teams as well. Um, And then, as I mentioned, receivers as well. Some of the guys I was looking at, like Terry Godwin, Dylan Mitchell, um, both huge producers in college who just, um, you know, whether it was measurables or one thing or another, just really didn't tip the scales for scouts like like I would have expected, certainly. Yeah, Dylan Mitchell was a huge surprise to me, especially between those two. Like, I can see with measurables, maybe Terry Godwin slipping a little bit. I don't think Dylan Mitchell really had those concerns. You're talking about a guy who was, what, an 1,100 or so yard receiver yeah. in Oregon last season. I don't think there was anything too concerning on tape or at the combine or anything. So his slip didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And Miles Gaskin, like you said, I mean, Miles Gaskin was a monster for four years. Maybe the NFL's worried he's got a little too much tread on the tires um, in comparison to some of the others. But I mean, that's a really productive back. And you got to think, at least in the short term, he's going to produce for a few years. And I mean, if you're taking him in the seventh round, if you get three solid years of production out of him, then that is a massive win. Yeah. If you get any production out of seventh round picks on actual Sundays that aren't, you know, helping out your practice squad and stuff, that's a massive steal. And I think he can definitely be that kind of player. Yeah, definitely. And then um, another one that sort of tipped the scales for me as somebody who grew up a Packers fan and, um, whether or not I follow up the draft intently, I, uh, you know, I definitely check up with that and seeing them get Dexter Williams from Notre Dame in the sixth round was a kind of a surprise for me. And I think he could really, really be a good contributor in that offense, especially, you know, with the shift in coaching staff there. Yeah. I like Dexter Williams a lot. I think, uh, that'll be a good spot for him. He's got, you know, if he can really, figure out the receiving aspect of the position. I think he'd have a really good shot. I mean, to play with Aaron Rodgers, you've got to be a receiving back as well, you know? So that's something that they'll really work with him on developing. And if he develops that well, um, I think that could be, you know, end up being a really, really good pick as well. Absolutely. Um, And then we were all, you know, you also mentioned some of these guys we were looking at who didn't even get, Um, drafted at all who were undrafted free agent signings. I was thinking, like you mentioned, Alex Barnes from Kansas State was one where that really shocked me. And, you know, he's signed with the Tennessee Titans now, um, has signed an undrafted free agent contract with them. But just the fact that you didn't see him go even on day three was pretty, pretty mind blowing to me. Yeah, man, I agree. I thought Barnes was really impressive at the combine. He ran a lot better than people thought, measured well, was a really good athlete. Seems kind of like a perfect running back slash H-back in the NFL, right? The kind of guy that's really versatile for an offense. You can split him out wide some. You can lead him as a as a lead back in like a short goal line situation where he can play some fullback, split out and catch some passes. I mean, I I'm shocked that he didn't get picked. I thought he would be a really good like late round flyer. Yeah, really have a really good shot at making a roster. And I think he's still got a really good shot at, at making a roster next season, just kind of depending on, you know, how he does in camp. And, you know, the, the thing that sucks with a guy like that, you know, an injury can kind of derail everything, you know. So if he gets hurt, has any kind of nagging injury, then that might be it for his chances in the NFL. And that's really unfortunate because I think he's a, a really quality player. Another guy 
we talked about the one on draft. How about Greg Dort from Wake Forest? Yes. Yeah, I was. You know, I know he's not. He doesn't have great size or anything like that, but I mean, he's lightning quick and just kind of seemed like the kind of fourth receiver or something you'd really want on your team in the NFL. I'm really shocked that someone didn't at least, you know, throw out a late round selection on him. Um, He got picked up by the Jets, who really have a need at receiver as well. So maybe that ends up being a pretty good selection. And the old adage always has been in the NFL draft sack, if you're going to be one of the last picks, you might be better off being an undrafted free agent just because you can pick and choose your situation. Yeah, you, so you got a guy like Greg Dorch and other players who get to go to a team like the Jets who really have a need at receiver and have a better shot at making the roster than, you know, if he would have got uh, signed by someone like the Saints or, um, you know, a team that really has quality depth at receiver and that kind of affects his standing. So, I mean, Maybe it's good for him to have not gone in the seventh round and several of the others to actually have a better shot at making the roster. doesn't make it any less surprising. Um, and if we stuck with receivers, I was really surprised, too. David Sills, mm-hmm. he wasn't a guy we mentioned last week. But, I mean, just for the fact that his red zone production at West Virginia, his size and his contested catch ability, David Sills, I mean, I think there's a spot for him. And, again, he's another guy who ends up in a pretty good situation because Buffalo – really doesn't have that many quality receivers. I mean, last year they were running with a, a mid-round selection and an undrafted free agent were their top two receivers last year on the roster. So there's really an opening there. And I think David Sills, especially with a guy like Josh Allen, who might not be that accurate, but he does have a really good yeah. arm. So he can throw the ball deep. And that's kind of David Sills' specialty, right? Is exactly. Is the defense and making big plays. So that might be one of the better fits of the undrafted free agents. I think so. Another one, I, and I think uh, one of our editors here at Saturday Blitz, Connor, would really probably agree with me, was Felton Davis. That was an interesting one as well. Um, just seeing, you know, remembering how well he played at Michigan State. Not as much last year as the year before, and I think that might be part of it, just having seen just fewer of those, like, big eye-popping plays like you saw uh, in 2017 for him. But that was one that also stuck to me. And then and, you know, I also, you know, eyeballs tend to go to the offensive side of the ball, but just looking at defense a little bit, um, Jabril Frazier from uh, Boise State was one that I thought could really be a lay round, you know, op- you know, option for, for some teams, and he didn't get that selection. Um, also looking at, like, TJ Edwards from Wisconsin among the linebackers, he was one that obviously is somebody who grew up, you know, following the Badgers, when I see a, a badger of that stature sort of get looked over, it, it, it opens my eyes a bit. But even setting aside those those red colored lenses, I I think he um he was definitely one I figured would at least be selected in one of the the third day, you know, selections. But as right. you, as you also mentioned, I think getting that opportunity to really pick and choose your your spot. Unless you're really selected in one of those first three rounds, you very well might be right about that. Because what you're giving away in terms of upfront money that comes from being slotted into a certain space, you can very possibly make back by, as you said, getting into a situation that really plays to your strengths and working yourself into a niche where you have a longer NFL career overall because you actually developed in the right place for what you do. 
Yeah, and the NFL doesn't give a damn about draft position and stuff like that. All these, you know, you see NFL coaches, they don't have near the leash that college football coaches. You don't normally see a college football coach who's fired after one or two seasons as the head coach. You see that all the time in the NFL. It's a win-now league. You got There's no rebuilding or anything like that. It's you got to win right now. They're going to take the best 53, and if you're an undrafted free agent and you outperform a guy who was the second or third round pick, then you've got the spot. You know, they're yeah. not going to hold it just because this guy was picked higher. It's not how this whole thing works. And there was a couple other defenders too, Zach, that I thought, um, you know, Tavon Coney from Notre Dame. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a linebacker, it really surprised me. And I think maybe the biggest shock might have been Gerald Willis, uh, defensive tackle from mm. Miami. Yeah, that uh, was He it. was one of the most productive, disruptive defensive tackles all last season I think maybe his character issues kind of came up in the pre-draft process stemming from everything that happened at Florida before he ended up at Miami but supposedly those issues are long in the past and whatnot but you know any little thing like that can really send you spiraling down on draft boards but I mean I think he's a really quality player and in the very least will be the kind of guy who could you know, eventually be a two-down player in the NFL, maybe not ever a, a three-down guy that's going to really affect the quarterback, but maybe can occupy that space in the middle, take up double teams and, you know, make plays that way or allow others to make plays even might be a, a more apt description. But I was really surprised um, that he went unselected. And then uh, if we flip back to offense too, the Buffalo duo we've kind of praised in recent weeks, both Tyree Jackson and Anthony Johnson um, went undrafted, and that's surprising. Tyree Jackson might have been the biggest surprise to me to go undrafted, period, because you're talking about a guy who has the arm strength, the size that NFL scouts kind of drool over. Uh, you know, he's got some accuracy issues, maybe some uh, mechanical issues that got to be ironed out, but he looked pretty solid at the Senior Bowl, and you got you had guys like Adam Schefter and people like that reporting a couple weeks before the draft that they thought this was going to be a guy who was picked a lot earlier than people thought. Like, he was projected to be a fourth or fifth round pick and they were talking about him potentially being a day two second or third round selection and he falls all the way off the board that's just baffling to me that he wouldn't get picked and I, again he gets to go undrafted free agent gets to stay at home because he's going to the bills yeah um they got uh i guess the most combined arm strength on that quarterback <laughs> roster now with those two guys well, yeah, and I was thinking about what you said just a few moments ago about Josh Allen in terms of, you know, being one of those players who isn't necessarily the most accurate player in the league, but he does have that arm that can really, you know, get the right receiver behind an offense. And, and if you've got a receiver that can really play to the ball, it's going to be beneficial. And so it's really interesting that they sort of bring in another really similar player to Josh Allen to compete for that position. Because um, if you really look at, at Jackson and Allen, they're, it, it's hard to really differentiate what's that different about them. They both led uh, sort of, you know, second tier group of five school to their conference championship game didn't win it in either case but had that opportunity and were one of those players where one of them was really hyped up going into the draft the other one looked like he was but then results being what they were just look at that tumble yeah it's kind of interesting maybe they've got the the idea that they're going to run their offense a certain way and they want to groom jackson to be the backup so if something happens to allen 
Well, we got uh, great value Josh Allen as his backup, you know, the guy that can do sort of the same things. And I don't know if Josh Allen's a long-term answer in Buffalo. And maybe Tyree Jackson will surprise and be uh, – he's a long-term kind of um, developmental prospect. He's got some issues he's got to iron out. But, I mean, the talent is so enormous if you can really – work it out i mean he could legitimately be a quality player in the league especially with the way the league's kind of going now you think patrick mahomes coming off of a, an mvp season he's the big arm big quarterback and you think teams are going to be trying to find you know not necessarily fruitfully find the next patrick mahomes because you always look for the next of a guy like that auburn's been looking for the next cam newton since 2010 and Typically, those players just don't actually exist because they're generational prospects. Uh, but it is surprising that you didn't see teams really jumping up and maybe making that comparison to Mahomes. And I think that's outlandish to say that Tyree Jackson's Patrick Mahomes or anything like that. But, you know, the similarities are there. They're both tall. They're both, you know, uh, bigger guys. They can both throw the ball 150 yards or whatever down the field. So yeah. it is kind of surprising in that, that no NFL team really took a shot. And no one would have been, they would have been criticized for it either because people were expecting it. It's not like it would have felt like a reach to, no. to take Tyree Jackson. Well, I think, you know, if, if the Giants might have taken him at number six, they, you know, might have been criticized the same way. But, um, you know, nobody was talking about him being a first-round pick. That's part of right. it as well. Like, a third-round pick, nobody would have raised an eyebrow. Fourth round. Well, there's pick. all the time. There's all the time weird selections like that in well, the third round that aren't on draft boards. Well, especially at quarterback. Like you'll see guys get, you know, sort of get that bump. It's such a valuable position that if you can find a guy who who, especially in terms of one of those lower rounds, can be a steal like that. Like you said, a Russell Wilson, where you get four, you know, years, five years of incredible value for the franchise. I mean, it's it's almost, a, I don't want to say a continuation of college where you're undervalued because you are actually getting paid at that point. But let's face it, you're still undervalued when you're on that rookie contract. We're not in Sam Bradford mode anymore with that. So, Right, absolutely. But I mean, I, 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 was, I think that's the one that really stunned me the most was Jackson just because of the talent and because of the fact that he seemed to be rising in the pre-draft process, all indications were that he was going to be selected, you know, not in the first round or anything like that, but probably in the third round, maybe fourth round, and then he just falls and falls and falls and completely falls out of the draft, which is just kind of shocking. And again, like you said, because quarterbacks are so valued, you expect a guy with that kind of ceiling to really be uh, coveted by franchises who were looking for, you know, maybe a groomable player. Maybe they have an entrenched starter that they know is going to be there for the next three, four, five years. But you draft a guy like Jackson or bring in a guy like Jackson who you can develop long term and maybe, you know, one day get something, you know, quality out of. Even if he's a nothing more than a backup in the late rounds. I mean, if you can find a quality backup quarterback in the sixth or seventh round, I mean, that's still really good. Yeah. And maybe that was the issue is maybe people thought he was more boom or bust and either he's going to be a starter or he's never going to be anything. So maybe it didn't make sense for some teams to spend a draft pick on a guy when they could find a safer prospect, a guy like Gardner Minshew, for instance, uh, who might not ever be a starting quarterback in the NFL, but at the very least you think that guy's probably going to be a quality backup for several years. Yeah. And he's the you know safer prospect in that regard. And, you know, that's definitely fair. And I really, again, 
like the point you made earlier about having that freedom of movement and getting to choose a situation that is right for the player as well. Um, because obviously the draft does not work that way. It, you know, it's, it's not even like college where you get to filter through your scholarship offers and choose the one that works best for you. You saw, you know, you get drafted, you sign the contract or you don't go pro. It, it's really right. that simple. Um, unless you go undrafted and then you get to sign a contract with any one of 32 teams. So, um, yeah, well, the thing I think is interesting just in terms of what you said with Buffalo is Mm -hmm. you've got a team that's still kind of working with a prospect quarterback. So bringing in another prospect that looks the same way. Like, I think if Josh Allen was actually you know, like an established star in the league was one of those players where you were expecting him to be around three to four more years. And you're looking for, you know, sort of that Favre to Rogers continuum where you're training up a guy to be the successor makes sense. But this really feels more like it's a, we're bringing in another guy. We we think this skill set is what we need at this position, but we don't know if you're the guy to do it which yeah. is an interesting approach. And I think if it does pan out for them with the competition driving one or the other of them to be the eventual, the guy in Buffalo, you could see other NFL teams take that similar approach where they just start to draft guys with similar skill sets at, at quarterback or even other positions and just like sort of stockpile until you get the one that really fits in your scheme. Right. It could be the whole, hey, we're not fully sold on Josh Allen. We don't want to draft a quarterback um, to maybe make him feel like he's looking over his shoulder or anything like that. But we bring him in as an undrafted free agent. We tell Josh, well, yeah, we just need depth at the position. We need someone to go through, you know, training camp, take some snaps and stuff like that. But you're entrenched. And really, they might have ulterior motives that, hey, we can groom this guy and maybe eventually he can be our guy if Josh isn't the the guy we think he might be. I I think that maybe is the sneaky way to bring in competition without your starter thinking it's actual competition. Yeah, I I think that that very well may be the case. And they're professional. You know, it's a cold-blooded business. And it's really interesting because at the same time, you're working with guys who do have massive egos, who really are the guy. I mean, you look at a guy like Josh Allen, and he was big man on campus at Wyoming. So yeah, like really that push and pull against whether or not you coddle, whether or not you like really make this an intense competition. I think it's not a one size fits all thing, obviously. So maybe this is really exactly the tactic they have to use with Allen. And most quarterbacks have fragile egos. So anything like that can really rip them up. And then the mental side of the game really can be affected by that. Cause if you've got a guy who feels like he's looking over his shoulder. Maybe he doesn't play as loose as he would normally play. He starts pressing. He starts turning the ball over more, and then you got a big issue on your hands. And you talk about you've got your diva quarterbacks, too, that, you know, you draft a quarterback and they get really upset by it. I mean, you know, Tom Brady pretty much orchestrated the trade that sent Jimmy Garoppolo out to San Francisco because Garoppolo had come in started a couple of games and looked really good when Brady was suspended. And by all accounts, Belichick was grooming Garoppolo to be the successor to Brady. But then Brady, you know, got a little bit nervous about that, wanted him gone. And, you you know, ownership's not going to go against 
a guy like that. And, you know, I still I think that's the right decision because this guy's winning Super Bowl after Super Bowl and is talking about playing until he's 45. So you just got to get over it, I suppose. But uh, I think stuff like that's also interesting because quarterbacks really are affected by that sort of thing, maybe more than any other. Because any other position, it's just like, well, yeah, there's competition. There's always competition. You know, but when you're the entrenched, when you get to be the entrenched starting quarterback, you don't think about the fact that you might be having to look over your shoulder. You think the job's yours and that's just how it's going to be. But no other position works like that in the NFL. Well, and I think part of that, too, is you have, you know, like if you lose your spot on the offensive line, there's an opportunity to transition to another one of the spots on the offensive line. We see that with players all the time being versatile in that regard. You know, it's the same thing with defense, like getting into a rotation is possible. You know, you might not be the every down guy, right? but players get rotated in and out at every other position a lot more than you see a quarterback. If you are the starter, you are the quarterback, you know, a a backup doesn't see the field unless it's garbage time one way or the other, or there's an injury And, and that's really your opportunistic you know, those are your two opportunistic options there is you either get to pad your stats like a, a Matt Flynn um, and, you know, make your make your name and get paid off of a couple of what one game. Exactly. <laughs> one game, a couple of, you know, garbage time performances, just those random rare opportunities you get to shine or. I mean, Brady knows it himself. Like, it's one of those things where if you get the opportunity and you seize it, it, you might, you know, the person who gets displaced might never get that chance again. It's the Wally Pip factor, right? Yeah, and he's seen the same thing. I mean, obviously, we'll always remember Brett Favre, but he saw that sort of grooming thing taking place, and Favre still wanted to play, but he was pushed out, and... Tom Brady's seen it with enough other players in New England that he knows that if the calculus is that this guy needs to start now, this guy's going to start now. I mean, Brady did it himself there, right? With Drew Bledsoe. He was a starting quarterback in New England. Brady came in, took over, won the Super Bowl, and then it was just his job. So that kind of thing can happen really no matter um, how good of a player you are. I mean, we saw at the end of Peyton Manning's career, he got benched for Brock Osweiler for a few games until Osweiler ended up being ineffective. Peyton came back in. They ultimately won the Super Bowl that year based on the strength of their uh, defense more so than anything Manning actually did. But yeah, I mean, it's a cutthroat league, and I think that's a, a good point, and maybe that plays into the whole quarterbacks being scared of losing their job because, you know, if you're a running back and you go from first string to second string, what do you go from, you know, 20 touches a game to 10 touches a game? Yeah. You, you know, quarterback, you go from taking every snap to taking zero snaps as the backup. You're holding the clipboard all game and, and doing not much of anything. And once you've got the taste of playing in the NFL as a quarterback, it's really hard to transition back to a backup role. Certainly. Um, was there anybody else that really stood out for you in terms of the draft before we uh, transition there, over? Yeah, there was several, but I think we've hit on enough at this point. I mean, there are so many guys who us as college football fans were kind of baffled by the fact that they don't get picked as high as we think they should be. And we look at things more, Zach, you and I, uh, from a college perspective. And that doesn't of course. necessarily mean that we're right because we don't. 
you know, admittedly, neither of us follow the NFL as closely as we follow the college game. So we might not be as as well versed on team schemes and stuff like that in the league. But I think we both have an eye for for talent and which players are, you know, quality players that should be able to transition from any scheme to any other. So but I think that's probably uh, enough for now. I mean, there I could probably read down the entire list and talk about it for another hour or so of guys that I think didn't really get a fair shake. But we got several other topics to get to. I think we can move forward. Well, we're going to take a quick break then before we get into looking at some of uh, the undrafted free agents a little bit more, specifically those who went undrafted but still had college eligibility. Stay tuned. Hello, everybody. We're back. And uh, John and I are next going to be talking a bit more about the NFL draft, looking at some of these undrafted free agents that still had college eligibility before they declared for the draft. I know before we uh, got on today, we were sort of disputing what the number even is in terms of how many um, of these players went undrafted. I know the big number that's been floated around is 30 underclassmen who went undrafted. But you were also mentioning that, you know, there were 14 other players who fulfilled um, graduation requirements for their undergraduate degrees, but still had another year of eligibility. Yeah, for whatever reason, I've never really understood this. The NFL only tracks it, and maybe it's a way of pulling the numbers down a little bit. They only track it for the players who were true juniors or redshirt sophomores coming out of college and declaring for the draft early. But you also have a ton of um, redshirt juniors declaring for the draft who, you know, technically have another year of eligibility, but they've already fulfilled their undergraduate requirements and have graduated and stuff. So the NFL doesn't count them as much because they've technically already graduated, but they would technically also be able to come back to school. And if you're talking about that way, there was 144 underclassmen who declared and 49 of them went undrafted. So that's kind of, that's more than a third of the, of the players. And that's a, that's a big number. Well, yeah. And I think it really speaks to one, you know, the desire to go pro. We've talked about it before where it's a game where it doesn't matter where you're taking these snaps, whether it's at the college or the pro level, the risk of injury is always there. And the risk of a, especially a career ending injury where you just might never get paid for doing this after putting in all this effort and getting to the point where you can even consider being drafted. You obviously want to, you know, try to make your bones in it. Um, So it makes sense that these players do declare, but what, you know, what happens to the ones who aren't actually drafted? You know, like we said, some of these players do get selected as undrafted free agents, both the underclassmen and, you know, these guys who did fulfill on their graduation requirements and, um, you know, decided to go pro and rather than playing a final year. But what do we do with these players? Like, obviously, they, you know, some of them will get selected by teams. But, you know, what if there was an opportunity for these players to go back to their college teams and, you know, fulfill on sort of the mission that the NCAA talks about in terms of education being paramount? Yeah, I mean, college basketball does it. You know, they have the avenue. It used to be in college basketball that if you entered the draft and didn't sign with an agent, you could come back to school. But now it's even they let kids who sign with agents even come back to school uh, now if they, 
you know, don't get drafted uh, at all, or maybe they don't get drafted in the situation that they wanted to be in or whatever. But, you know, in the NFL, it's just you go, you leave, and that's it. You know, there's no avenue to come back. You could come back technically and finish your degree, but that you can't get on the field at this point because you're no longer an amateur or whatever. I know there's issues with that uh, because you've got the – scholarship limits you know you only got 85 scholarships so you lose a player uh to the pros typically teams aren't going to be under scholarship requirements so they're going to want to you know give that scholarship to a recruit or whatever fill back up to 85 and that guy just doesn't have a spot on the team anymore because you can't do it i could wax on further about the arbitrary 85 for scholarships and how i don't you know necessarily agree with the limits there and whatnot but I think the main thing is, too, Zach, that you could tie this back into more of the college football free agency thing, right? Especially for the kids who already have their degrees. If they go undrafted, but they've already got their degrees and they have another year of eligibility, why can't they go as a graduate transfer to to another school? You know, you've got guys, you know, that could easily have interest as, you know, redshirt juniors and stuff like that. A guy like... Uh, Joe Giles Harris, linebacker out of Duke, you know, you're telling me he wouldn't have interest from plenty of schools who wanted to to bring him in. I mean, there are guys like that every year. Alex Barnes from Kansas State. Yeah. I mean, you're telling me that guy wouldn't have interest as a grad transfer at a number of schools, and then maybe they get into a better situation to then, you know, improve their draft stock the next season. I wish there was something like that that college football would kind of institute to give these guys a, a better shake because a lot of these kids, man, they get really bad advice. Um, and, you know, I don't want to ever fault a kid for trying to go get paid. You know, playing football is a finite resource. You can only do it for so long um, before it's over. You know, the, what's the average uh, life? The average NFL player plays like three years. Three and a year, half something years like is that. the average. That's yeah. the average. So, I mean, that's it's a finite resource getting to play this game. And I feel like there's a lot of the, the confidence men out there, right, that have their hands out and kind of steer these kids to try to go get paid when really sometimes the best option is to come back for your senior season and try to improve that draft stock. And, you know, you always have the cases where there's kids who come back and, you know, might get hurt mm-hmm. and, and then not get drafted at all. But then you also have the cases of kids who come back and really do improve their stock. I mean, if I look at it from a big thing coming in this draft surrounded around Nick Saban mm-hmm. uh, making the comment about um, wanting some of the guys who left early to come back, really thinking that he's always played it the same way. If you're a first-round pick, you go. If you're a projected second or third or even later round pick, you come back. And he's always kind of steered his guys in the right ways. And there's data that really supports Saban's thing. I wrote a whole thing about it one time where I believe it was 96% of the players that went pro uh, with remaining eligibility got drafted from Alabama under Saban, and the national average is like 67%. So, I mean, really there's something to that. And only the second player ever under Saban went undrafted this week as an early entrant. That was Savion Smith. Yeah. Uh, uh, But I think he kind of saw the writing on the wall in the depth chart and thought maybe his value was as high as as it was going to be. But you also got guys like – Deontay Thompson and Mac Wilson, who had remaining eligibility, and they were fifth round guys. And it's but you know really possible that they would have came back for another year. They could have improved on that. There's several cases of that under Saban where that happened. Uh, Reuben Foster came back was a first round pick. C.J. Mosley was a first round pick after kind of coming back and improving and stuff like that. So 
it's interesting and I feel bad for them because I think you've got the, like I said, the confidence men, the guys in your corner who are really pushing you to do that because they want a slice of the pie. You know, yeah. they want to get paid off of you. They're not doing anything. They're not bringing any value. The kids are the ones who are bringing it in. So that's a whole nother set of problems. And again, I don't want to fault it because fifth round money is still life changing money for some of these kids. As soon as they get that, you know, whatever, two hundred, $300,000 signing bonus. I mean, that's just, that's life changing money. If somebody handed me a $200,000 check right now, my life would be totally different tomorrow than it is today. Oh, of course. Well, and it, yeah, so I, I'm in agreement with you there. You can't fault the kid for trying. Obviously, if there's any opportunity there to to make your way into a pro spot and get into an advantageous opportunity, you got to try for it. But at the same time, you know, if we're looking at these undrafted free agents, we mentioned that they have the opportunity to go to any number of 32 teams and seek out their right option. But what if they also did have that opportunity to go back to college? Like, how many more of them might steer that way? Somebody, you know, that came to mind for me is that we were talking about in the last segment was Tyree Jackson. So, you know, he, you know, he was obviously, it was pretty much expected he was going to transfer away or he was going to go pro. He wasn't going to be with the Bulls next year. That just was the case. But what if he did you know, take advantage of the transfer opportunity as a graduate to go to a Power 5 team, do something like, you know, I mean, obviously Russell Wilson went Power 5 to Power sure. 5, but somebody that comes to mind for me was Vernon. Gardner Minshew? Yeah, exactly. He did that. Um, even like Vernon Adams Jr., who went from the FCS yeah. to Oregon. Um, and obviously there were issues there with injuries in his case, but that was a risk worth taking in his regard, you know? Um, and I think it very well might've been for Jackson as well, a risk worth taking where, you know, if he was being talked up as that skilled and that capable, go show it for a year at a power five school, show what you can do there. And, um, yeah, I really think he would have been a day two pick in the, 2020 draft if he had done something like that i i would how, have yeah how many power five teams are coming out of spring practice right now zach with unsettled quarterback situations who would be jumping to grab the phone to call tyree jackson today about coming into their program i mean there's yeah. there's several right that really could use a player like that like i i mean i don't want to get too into specific fits because it's nonsense it doesn't matter but there's plenty yeah. of teams out there who would be chomping at the bit to bring him in. And like you said, he would have the opportunity to play on more of a national stage at some of these schools. And then also to have, you know, more quality coaching, you know, yeah. I think Lance Leopold's a great coach. I don't know about his staff on down the line though, is the quarterback coach at Buffalo as good as a quarterback coach at, you know, a team like Alabama or Georgia, USC, whoever. I mean, none of those schools would have made sense as a fit, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like these lower down the line, then all these other Bigger schools, too, have all these analysts and stuff like that who work in practices and stuff hand-to-hand uh, -hand with these kind of players and stuff. So I I wish there was an avenue like that because I think Tyree Jackson is probably the best case or the best example of this because he would absolutely probably be the most sought-after undrafted free agent right now for programs really who have a need at the position. And, and you know, maybe it wouldn't be – a powerhouse program maybe it would end up being 
a, a team like a Rutgers or somebody like that who who needed the help, but he's still getting a shot at a Power Five school, still playing you know eight or nine games against Power Five competition, yeah. and really having the avenue and the stage to show really what he can do, um, as opposed to going to Buffalo and playing on Wednesday nights and stuff like that, where a lot of scouts just aren't watching. Yeah, well, and I think of you know um, teams were he would obviously be an upgrade on what's the options there right now. You could even look at a team like, say, Mississippi State, where Nick Fitzgerald isn't there anymore. He could easily step up and be the guy there, and getting the tutelage under Joe Moorhead would be huge as well, having seen what he was able to do with quarterbacks at Penn State um, before he took the Mississippi State job, I think. That's really sort you know, that sort of situation is really just an eye opener for the scouts and would just boost that draft stock immeasurably. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There was there'd be a number of teams calling. He would have thirty voicemails today about teams trying to get him in for a visit. Oh yeah. And, you know, he would have his pick. And what that also means is he would have his pick about which graduate degrees he wanted to start on, too. So putting it back into that educational mission aspect of it, you look at all of these guys and they would have free reign to go get more education. I, I, I can't see, given the NCAA's stated mission, how that could possibly be a bad thing. No, what's the negative for the guys who have graduated and test the the draft waters would have a year of eligibility left. What's the negative of them going back to school? I can. Yeah, exactly. There, there's nothing that would indicate that being a bad thing. You know, the worst that happens is somebody else doesn't get that scholarship spot, which as you said, really speaks to the arbitrary nature of where we set scholarship limits as well. I mean, several teams have open scholarships at the moment because you've got guys who are still, they're still working out those numbers. So you got guys who are still transferring. You've got incoming recruits who probably won't qualify. Not all these recruits who didn't graduate early and come in are going to qualify in time to join the team, you know, during the summer. Like, that happens every year. These kids end up going JUCO. And then there's roster spots open, scholarship spots open, yeah. that maybe end up going to the walk-on in practice who, you know, busts his butt every day and they do the nice video board message or the surprise scholarship, which I can't get enough of those. Those are awesome. Yeah. But, I mean, there's always spots, and teams have, you know, the should have the flexibility to be able to do that. And really, to me, the point that matters the most is for the player, for a guy like Tyree Jackson, yeah. who could go back and get that another year of experience under his belt and then really be, you know, and maybe he, maybe he doesn't end up, performing that well and then he ends up in the same situation but you go from undrafted free agent to undrafted free agent so what's the risk there exactly well yeah i mean the risk reward variable there just really skews in favor of the player because it's just one more option and i think that's really the critical part yes you could go back to college but yes you can still also sign with any one of those 32 nfl teams if you're just that confident about your ability and you want to make it immediately in the pros you know that avenue is not gone if you bring about something like this there really is no negative to this other than the NCAA having a little bit less control over it and member conferences and member institutions having less control over athletes' bodies and movement. God forbid that ever happens. 
I know it's, it's kind of wild to think about that possibility that, you know, somebody might be able to have agency over their own situation in a way that is beneficial for all parties concerned. Like that's the other part of this is the only, the only party that really has anything um, not going their way right now is the player. And if you give the player agency, it's not like everybody else's opportunity. It's not a zero-sum game. Everyone can win here. You know, this is something where everybody can be set up to win. I think it's another one of those cases, too, uh, where it's unfortunate that we don't have that spring football league or whatever that's still kind of going right now. Like, you know, the AAS already folded. Who knows what's going to happen with the XFL next year. But, you know, recent history shows us that it's probably not going to succeed either if we're, you know, being honest with ourselves about it. But if you had a league like the Alliance that was the feeder league to the NFL and a kid like Tyree Jackson go down, play for one of these Alliance teams, show his worth against other, you know, really quality players who are a step away from the NFL and then get the opportunity because there's only so much you can show in practice. Tyree Jackson and these other undrafted free agents are going to have to show it in training camp and stuff like that, which that's, you know, fine. They simulate games. They simulate things well, but it's all different when the lights come on. Yeah. The TV cameras are rolling. You're playing in front of a raucous crowd and everything like that. It's a whole different ball game. It's hard to always show it in practice when you can show it in a live game situation. Some players fare better in those live game situations. So that's another one of those kind of unfortunate moments that the AAF still not around because that would be another really good option for some of these players who went undrafted or even some of these late round picks aren't going to make NFL rosters. Cause you know, there's some plenty of these fifth, sixth, seventh round guys aren't going to be on NFL rosters when the season starts. No, it, it, yeah, exactly. Just giving that opportunity to sell players as much as possible is huge for the player. Um, because you know, not everybody's going to get paid, but those guys who are going to get paid, where they go does matter in terms of the salary structure that sets up for the rest of their careers. And, you know, speaking of salary structure, I just want to leave this segment here because we're going to be diving into salary a lot more into the next section. So with that, um, we'll just tease that a bit and leave that there. And we'll be back right after this break, everybody. Stay tuned. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, our last topic of this week's podcast is revolving around um, the growing contract structures for college football coaches, in particular with Dabo Sweeney recently signing a 10-year, $93 million extension, which is the biggest in total sum contract in college football history for a coach. It's um, He'll be the second highest paid um, annually behind Nick Saban, um, we saw a couple of years ago, everybody was kind of baffled by Jimbo Fisher's contract that he signed at Texas A&M. I think it was 10 years, $75 million. Mm-hmm. And then Clemson comes back with 10 years, 93. So there's several interesting aspects about the Sweeney contract that we'll dive into. But I know Zach has several thoughts about it. And I'd love to hear kind of pick your brain on this because I've already kind of laid out some of my thoughts on the website uh, on SaturdayBlitz.com. I wrote about Dabo Sweeney's new contract and stuff, and I'll dive into that more later. But I'm really curious, Zach, as to, to what uh, your initial thought process was around it. Um, yeah, thank you. My initial thought process was, um, I guess he's lost all his motivation now. 
<laughs> you know, that that's what really came to mind for me was going right back to his quote about paying athletes. And, um, you know, how he said he was just going to go take a different job if that ever happened. I think he's going to be hard-pressed to step aside from $9.3 million a year average. And, you know, even looking at incentives, you know, he if he wins the ACC and wins the national championship in any one of these years over the next 10 years, um, that's an extra $850,000 immediately tacked on in incentives. Um, he wins national coach of the year, put another 50000 on there, which, you know, is cigar lighting money at that point for him. So to think, you know, that obviously has not stunted his motivation, um, as facetious as I can be about that. It, it really just kind of shows that people are only talking about not paying players and they're not being the money to pay players if their money is in any way going to be affected by that. Like, really, the people you hear talking about, oh, we have to look out for non-revenue sports, are the ones who sign a bigger contract the next year. That don't give a crap about non-revenue sports. That's just a convenient thing to bring exactly. up. They don't care about it. Exactly. They're not worried about the wrestling team down the hall. They're not worried about men's and women's volleyball. They're not worried about the softball team. Even if that softball team is a you know, top three team that's in the, the World Series that year. They don't care. Um, no. You know, they're not even, they, they, they probably don't even remember that those sports exist most of the time until it becomes a convenient talking point. Because for these coaches, it's very much a one-track mind. It is very much a world that is completely immersed in football. And so, yes, on one hand, we've seen what that does for a, a program, a school, an entire state sometimes if that football program is doing well. Obviously, Dabo has raised the bar for Clemson in a way that has elevated things for that entire school beyond just the football team itself. Um, you know, the, the sort of, they talk about the flutie bump and how... Um, Boston College after that Hail Mary against Miami to Gerald Balin, you know, like enrollments boomed for the for Boston College. And there is a very real element to that where schools do have a better talent pool to pick from for all of their enrollments, especially for out of state, you know, having been at several schools where both out of state enrollment and international enrollment is really an important thing to keep an eye on in terms of what that school, that university's budget overall is this year or in a given year, that is something that you do have to think about. So, you know, signing somebody like Dabo and signing him to a contract that locks him in that long, you know, it gives, it, it gives security to boosters who are going to donate to the school. It gives security to recruits that they're not going to get, you know, the end around from their coach the next year down the line because a better opportunity comes up. And it, you know, even for the student body in general, it gives people who are considering going to that school, you know, in part because they want to go, you know, the ancillary parts of college are definitely part of college in terms of going to sit in the student section and root for a good team 
you're probably going to be more likely to do that if you like college football at all and have options than to go root for an absolutely crappy team with a miserable coach and you're going to see four of them over four years because they're just not worth a damn. So I get that. It, it certainly does work economically. But what this really shows is the money's there if the will is there. And the will was obviously there to make sure that Davo didn't run off to any opportunity. Right. Well, I think, you know, I don't think either of us are going to make the argument that Dabo hasn't earned the money he's earned because what he's done on the football field is kind of unprecedented. Um, you know, Clemson's won two national titles in three years. He's elevated them uh, right alongside Alabama when it looked like Alabama was just going to steamroll college football continuously for the next decade or so. He's kind of brought Clemson right there, right there, right on the same level. They've split the last four national titles with Alabama. So, I mean, and then I think you made a really good point, too, about the enrollment boost. And Clemson's a national brand now because of what Dabo's built there. Before he was the head coach there, they weren't, you know, one of the teams. that They really feel like a blue blood now. They weren't really a team that really first came to mind. Now you can't really talk about college football without mentioning Clemson. And you saw the same stuff at Alabama. Like, one of, I saw an interesting fact about the University of Alabama um, last year. It was something like, 10 years ago, 100 students enrolled from the state of Illinois. And then in 2018, in just the fall semester, 1,600 students came to the University of Alabama from the state of Illinois. Like, that's crazy. And it's because Alabama is a national brand. Yeah. It really is because of the football program is what did that. So the amount of money that these schools or these football programs bring to these institutions, and like you even said, to the state in general, is a ton. So a lot of these you know, these schools make massive profits and giving back to the coach who's kind of built that makes sense. But don't say there's not enough money because it's not a money issue or anything like that. You're not going to have programs that drop their, you know, schools who drop programs like lacrosse and stuff like that to be able to afford to pay these athletes because the money's there. It's just they don't want to give it away. The haves never want to give to the have-nots. And that works yeah. across from college athletics to the entire, you know, world, you know what I mean? Like, that's just how things always work in society. Oh, yeah. And it, it, I think a good way to sort of visualize this and the fact that really talking about non-revenue sports is lip service is the fact that Davo didn't say, no, no, only give me half of that and let's boost the salaries of the guys down there in baseball, sure. tennis, wrestling, the golf team, volleyball all of those guys they're not these coaches aren't act actively asking to siphon their salaries over to those non-revenue sports so talking about the fact that this pays the way for non-revenue sports is really disingenuous on their part no yeah i agree completely the money's there and something needs to be done about it and D davo's little statement too about he'll just go do something else what else is going to pay him what he's getting paid at Clemson right now? What is Dabo going to go do to make this kind of money? And once you've made this kind of money, you don't just walk away and go make a couple hundred thousand dollars as a public speaker or whatever. So, I mean, I, he could go be one an ESPN analyst and still be a part of college football, but that wouldn't really make sense, right? Because the sense of entitlement that these players have now, why would he want to be involved in the sport at all in any capacity? Right. But what else is Dabo Sweeney qualified to do other than coach football at this stage of his life? He's not. He could, like I said, he could go be a, 
a motivational speaker. I'm sure people would come and listen to him talk, and I'm sure he could fire up a crowd just as well as he can fire up a football team. But Dabo's not going anywhere. And no. if he does, good riddance. If he does and he wants to leave because players get a slice of the pie, then goodbye, Dabo. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Well, and I think what you said there, you really mentioned a word I wanted to because it was what he specifically said in his quote. I'll go do something else because there's enough entitlement in this world as it is. Entitlement. It's a really interesting thing to hear out of a guy's mouth who gets to basically name his salary every year, who gets paid to be on the sideline of a football game, who gets paid more than any other official in his state to be on the sideline for a football game, and who has enough money already saved up where he is entitled to the opportunity to just wash his hands of the game completely and still live a completely comfortable <laughs> life if he did were to actually follow, you know, back up his words with action and just say, thanks, no thanks, I'm done, if a player were to get some kind of stipend for what they do. And, you know, not to discount his rags to riches beginning, Dabo is somebody who certainly understands where some of these players are coming from. He comes from very humble beginnings. I get that. But at the same time, if you're going to be the type of person who pulls up the ladder after you... And, um, you know, also talks about, you know, we're creating certain types of opportunities when you have opportunities that the guys who coached you never had themselves. Like, you just look at the, the sense of budding entitlement among coaching staffs in general. And, yes, there's a lot more risk in terms of, you know, we used to talk about coaching staffs got five years and the opportunity to really implement their system, implement recruiting to the point where they got in the right guys to run that system. And that's not always the case anymore. You know, two to three years is really your option at this point. If your first full recruiting class doesn't start to, to show some kind of promise, you're on a hot seat. Right. Um, but that's well, Willie Taggart was on a hot seat after one season. Exactly. And, you know, um, for certain fan bases, it doesn't necessarily entirely feel crazy to hear that. And the whole reason that's not crazy is because you're ponying up this kind of money per year. I mean, you know, just to stay with Clemson, looking at the fact that Brent Venables got another year added to a contract that pays him more than $2 million per year as a coordinator. The fact that both of their co-coordinators are making north of a million dollars a year. Um, you know, when you have even your assistants in seven figures, like the entitlement to say that players deserve nothing beyond the scholarship value, while coaches deserve whatever their market value might be. Again, it, it really is just sort of a two-faced message. In, in what do you actually value and what are you, you know, really trying to instill in players? Because if you did care about those guys down the hall and, and cared about intercollegiate sport as a developmental tool that goes in line with every other aspect of the university, you'd be saying, go pay the wrestling coach down the hall. You wouldn't be saying, boost my salary another two, three million dollars a year. Right. And I, one thing with that, too, where you're talking about entitlement, getting what you deserve is not entitlement. 
That's not what that word means. No, that's not at all what that. <laughs> Thank word you. Means. Yes. So, yeah, I don't. I don't understand. I don't think he's using the word properly. I know what he's going for, but it doesn't fit in this instance. And you know, and it's not just Dabo. I don't want to say yeah. it's just Dabo because there's plenty of coaches. We're picking on Dabo today just because because he's the he the flavor of the signed, month. Yeah. Yeah. He just signed this big contract extension. He happens to have provided a a money quote on the subject before that kind of makes him easy uh, to target there. But I think it is interesting, too, with like the player aspect, because you've got a lot of former players and even current players kind of pushing for that. And how will that maybe eventually affect what Dabo is able to bring in talent-wise at Clemson if he's kind of championing the whole we're never going to pay players aspect of that? And, you know, it'll be interesting, too, Zach. I kind of hope it happens that Clemson gets busted for paying players under the table because wouldn't that be just the biggest (laughs) twist of irony? It really would be, yeah, setting up their little, you know, Pony Express payroll system. Um, Would be a really fascinating story to have come out. Obviously, we're just... uh, talking conjecture here there's nothing so so before anybody jumps on this we're not busting any major stories here um but that would be a really fascinating thing to have come out just in terms of the hypocrisy of it all Um, all right there was one more interesting aspect of Dabo's contract i'm sure you saw the alabama clause oh yeah i'm glad you touched on it i actually wanted to get there as well so let's jump there next Yeah, I thought it was interesting because a lot of, like, national college football writers immediately came out after seeing that contract without really looking at the fine print and were like, well, that ends the Alabama speculation, you know, because everybody's expecting within probably five years Nick Saban will retire and um, Alabama will be in the search for a new football coach. And obviously the first name that's always come to mind in that instance has been Dabo Sweeney at Clemson just because Dabo's an alum. He still has a big affection for the university as much as Clemson fans don't want that to get out. He absolutely does. Oh, yeah. I mean, in 2017, Clemson had a bye week and during that bye week, Alabama celebrated the 25 year anniversary of the 1992 national championship team. And guess who was in Bryant Denny stadium for that game? Oh yeah. Davo Sweeney was in Bryant Denny stadium for that game with his teammates taken in the crowd. He didn't wear an Alabama shirt or anything like that. Cause he couldn't do that. But it obviously still means something to him to that degree that he would show up for that. And, you know, Alabama's his dream job. Don't discount the fact that he grew up, he got into coaching, thinking one day maybe I can be the head coach at Alabama. Oh, yeah. And that's something that's always been there. I don't think he ever envisioned building a powerhouse at Clemson and stuff like that or anywhere else. So. I think he would probably be crazy to ever leave Clemson because he's got it made. He's, you know, the Nick Saban of Clemson right now. He's going to go down as the greatest coach in Clemson football history. Or even more. I mean, I think he's even, even you could say like the Bear Bryant where he's really reinvigorated a program that was a dormant giant to the point where you'd never had a period like this before. Yes. You know, Danny Ford brought the championship in 81, but you know, other than that, it's not even like, uh, you know, some of these other powerhouse programs where they have like past moments of glory or past like period, like dynastic periods. You just don't see yeah. that with Clemson. You get a history of Clemsoning. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. They completely reversed that trend. Clemsoning now means 
kicking the crap out of everybody. Exactly. <laughs> so he, I, again, I think he would be crazy. And I've always preached that to Alabama fans, as I know, who think Dabo is going to be the coach once Saban retires. So I really think it's unlikely. But I believe it more now than I did before he signed this contract because of the fact that there's an Alabama clause in there. Why would Clemson need to include that clause in his contract where they get extra money in a buyout if that thought wasn't on the radar? Oh, yeah. That thought is absolutely on the radar. It might even be something Dabo's told Clemson, like, hey, if Alabama comes calling, I'm going. Add this into the contract. They'll pay the buyout. I know they will. You guys can get a little bit extra, and we can kind of wash our hands and move on. And, you know, maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's something Clemson's hoping they put in there. But that little bit of money they've added in there means nothing. Oh, no. Nothing to Alabama. Like, you're talking about his buyout if he leaves – between 2019 and 2020 regularly would be $4 million. If it's for Alabama, it's $6 million. You think Alabama gives a crap about $6 million? They just paid $5.5 million to Avery Johnson to not coach the basketball team anymore. Yeah. They're willing to pay that kind of buyout and then go and pay the buyout for Nate Oates at Buffalo to come be the basketball coach here, and you get to $6 million plus for basketball, you think they care about – that's the height of Dabo's buyout is $6 million. They'll pay yeah. that any day of the week. That means nothing to them. And really when you get to the point, I don't think it'll be 2019 or 2020 when Saban retires anyway, so you're looking probably 21, 2021, 2022, and you're talking $4.5 million buyout yeah. that Alabama would have to pay to bring Dabo in. That's nothing. So why include that? If you know it's not something that's going to scare Alabama off, it's not like they included a, okay, if it's the Alabama job, it's $20 million more million. Well, exactly. The, Some the, crazy number. The fact that it's only 50%, again, premium for Alabama, it shows that it's more of a token than anything for me. And, you know, I, I, it's adorable that they put that in there. But yeah, like you said, $6 million isn't going to scare them off. Even if you'd made it triple damages for Alabama and every one of those numbers was, you know, multiplied by three, making his buyout $12 million wouldn't have been enough to scare away Alabama if they knew they could get a guy who was going to be their guy for the next 10, 15 years. Yeah, that keeps them on the same level that they're at right now keeps the revenue stream pushing because Dabo would generate the same level of interest and everything like that. I mean, Alabama's got high-level boosters who would pay that for the university without the university even having to to pay a cent of that buyout in an instant. So I think, honestly, that makes me think that Dabo might actually be the next Alabama coach once Saban's gone, the fact that that's even in there at all because it's just, if not, it's just gratuitous, right? Like, what's the point of that being added in there. Like I said, it's not a, a crazy figure that makes it nearly impossible um, to bring him in. It's just the, hey, you know, I really appreciate you guys, so I want to do something for when this happens. Yeah. I want to leave you guys with a little bit extra, and there's no other job he's going to leave Clemson for. There's no other no. job he would consider leaving Clemson for. It's this one. That's the only one. And that little bit extra is just kind of a, a parting gift from Dabo 
to do that. The only other thing that makes sense is that him and his agent are wanting to leverage his potential interest in Alabama, so maybe he could get an even bigger payday down the line. Oh, yeah. Um, Two, three years down the road, he wins another national championship. You just renegotiate this to become the first $100 million guy in college football history. The Alabama job comes open. He leverages interest there and gets an even bigger payday because Clemson will try to come out and do anything. Alabama can exceed or match any match or exceed anything Clemson pays uh, for him to be the coach. And, you know, there's the mama factor, right? Yep. You know, mama calls, you got to come running. Dabo at his core has always been an Alabama kid. Yep. And I, you know, I get Clemson fans think it's blasphemy to talk about. I just, you know, I don't want them to get caught off guard by it and think it's just crazy that he might leave because I think it's absolutely a possibility just because of how much this university, just because how much this state has always meant to him. Exactly. I'm sure there were Texas A&M fans, you know, a half century ago who were thinking the exact same thing. Like, what are you doing running away? You know, you're just beginning to build up this program and you're going back to Alabama. It's it's the exact same thing. But um, just to kind of shift gears here, and we're, I, I'm still obviously on the topic of coaching, but you mentioned, like, we're not trying to pick on Dabo. And, I, you know, I really just want to hit on that quick. I think part of the reason why he's such a captivating character is what he really does for me is provide a really interesting juxtaposition against somebody like, well, he's a former coach now, but like Steve Spurrier who also got the chance to coach at his alma mater um, and was a huge proponent of paying players. You know, he was somebody who said, I will divert some of my own salary that I've negotiated to give these kids something back. And who, you know, like never said it specifically, but he seemed like the kind of guy who very well might have said, let me divert this to go pay this non-revenue sport coach something. Right. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, like, that's really why I think Dabo comes out for me right now is somebody who's just really um, on uh, on that opposite end of the spectrum. He really just provides an avatar of what we think of as this sort of self-righteous me, me, me coach who lives, eats, and sleeps football and is so um, lacking lacking in that greater awareness of the impacts that even their words have on the guys that they work with. You know, you mentioned what will this do to recruiting down the road if, you know, the money just continues to go up and guys are fighting for this and he continues to be an antagonist. Like the fact that the guy who's supposed to be your mentor is teaching you advocate for your, you know, your own worth. Look at me. I'm advocating for my own worth, but then comes out and says, you know, I'm going to leave you guys high and dry. If you were to actually successfully advocate for your own worth, that's, that's not leadership. That's not mentorship. That's self-righteousness. And that's really at the end of yeah, just at the end of the day, that's really what gets it for me about this whole thing. Certainly the guy got paid, Certainly, he's a good enough coach to to have recruited the players that put Clemson in position to win championships and get him paid. He doesn't win that without the players that he and his staff recruited, obviously, but those players have to go make the plays. They have to execute it in the end. 
he can't right. do it alone. No, right. And I, it's funny because he's not the only coach who feels that way. There's a ton of coaches around the country who feel that way, but they're also smart enough to shut up yes. when it comes to that kind of stuff because he's on the wrong side of that argument. I don't know if he really realizes it or maybe he just doesn't care because maybe, like you said, he's got – He's got the ability that he can retire tonight and he's set for life. He never has to work again the rest of his life. He doesn't have to go on speaking tours to make ends meet or go work at a department store or anything like that. He's set. You know, Debo has made enough money at this stage of his life. He can retire and go sit on the lake and fish for the rest of his days until he croaks out, right? So not everybody has that luxury, but he absolutely does. So maybe he's not blowing smoke in that regard. Maybe he's, you know, being genuine when he says that so maybe he doesn't care about the ramifications of what his words actually do and what you know him being on the wrong side of this down the road because you know if players had the opportunity to vote on this it's going to be unanimous yeah (laughs) if they got to vote on hey do you want to make money or make no money like no one would ever vote no i'd rather not get paid like has there ever been a situation in your life zach where you didn't want to make money doing something no I, I can't think of anything where if the opportunity was there to get value for the effort I was putting in, you know, to get that fair value for it, you don't say no to that. Yeah. And, and really what we've seen is, you know, we've talked about it in several stretches, so I'm not going to belabor it too much more. But between the, you know, getting steered towards certain classes and not always being able to choose the sort of major that's really going to enliven you and set you up for a lifetime of career happiness for, you know, the fact that you still do have to practice and deal with rehab and deal with all these other elements of playing a very brutal game and the amount of time that stacks up around that, the 40, 50 hours a week that go into a sport that you're saying only takes 20 hours a week out of your schedule. The fact that not only can you not make money from the sport itself, you know, whether it's actually getting paid by the university, whether it's capitalizing on your likeness, you know, even being able to look, seek out endorsement deals for guys who are obviously very marketable. But you not only can you not do that, you also can't go get a side job. Like you talk about guys who even come into school already having established business, already having established names as, you know, artists and performers. And they're forced to completely set that aside or forego their eligibility. There are certain things you could do in this system that would have made this not get to the point that we're at right now. There are certain corrections that could have been made along the way. But we're at a point right now where it's so draconian. There are so many restrictions in that regard that we're going to see that bubble burst. And then when it does, perhaps Dabo really does just go right off into the sunset with what will have been at that point innumerable dozens of millions of dollars. He got he got his great. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, you got yours. But to say that nobody like somebody else advocating for theirs is just going to make you take your ball and go home. That's not what football was ever meant to teach people. I don't think so. Really? What are you saying there? That's being a sore loser. Exactly. Like that's, that's loser behavior, right? The, Oh, well I can't stand the fact that you're getting the same opportunities as me. 
I'm getting out of here. I don't like this. And I'm going to go home and tell my mom about it. And you're all going to be sorry. So I, I think you hit on an interesting point. I don't want to dive into too much further because we've talked about stuff like that before, maybe not in this context. But the fact that sometimes these kids have to switch majors just because the classes they want to take don't fit into the football schedule. Yep. They only have a set number of, you know, they've got to be at practice at a certain time. They've got to be in the weight room at a certain time. So they've got to filter their or schedule their entire class workload around football. It's not the other way around. No. Football doesn't revolve around your school schedule. Your school schedule revolves around football. So they might have to shift gears into something they maybe don't want to study as much as something else, specifically because the class they want to take isn't offered at the right time. And, and that's another really big thing that I think gets often ignored. That's why a lot of these kids end up majoring in secondary or whatever um, majors that they may, might not have had any real interest in coming in, but, hey, I got to do this because I want to play football, and this is the only degree I can really get that has any bit of interest for me that kind of fits around my schedule. Totally. And, you know, obviously, you know, when you are in school, you have to fit things around life. You know, other students have to work for a living, and they'll have to fit that around. But at the same time, you go seek out part-time jobs that fit around your school schedule as well. You know, when I was an undergrad, I was cooking. You you know, I didn't find a job that was during the day. I, you know, you don't go find a day shift job cooking. You go find a, a night shift job at a brew pub or something and work until midnight and then close up shop and go finish your homework and then wake up in the morning and do it again. Right. Um, and that's what players are doing. Their job they chose was football. They're putting in the same amount of time, more time in many cases than people with part-time jobs are and not having the, the return for it. Because I had grants, I had scholarships that covered some of this stuff too. So it's not like I was having to pay that whole way. But, you know, you still have to pay rent. You still have to pay food. And that's not all covered under a, a cost of living stipend even, or, uh, you know, just the base scholarship for certain. Right. Yeah. And like you said, the, the dam is going to burst eventually and it'll be interesting to see what side most of these guys fall on. I'm glad you brought up Steve Spurrier as well. I don't think he gets enough credit for kind of always being the champion of the student athlete. And he was kind of like that from day one till now. It's kind of interesting that, Dabo is a guy who's probably 20 years Spurrier's junior, and Dabo is the guy more older with the old school kind of set in your ways mindset. And Spurrier has always been a guy who's adapted and grown with the with not just the game but in with society. Well, and we see that. I mean, just coaching itself is a very conservative um, part of society because it draws on tradition and those ideas of respect for authority and, you know, following orders, um, just really falling in line like that. And so there has always been a very conservative element to the coaching ranks. It's something a couple of my friends in the world of sport history write about much more extensively than I could ever talk about it. So if any of you viewers have interest, uh, hit me up on Twitter and I'll shoot you some interesting links to more of this. Um, but in general, yeah, it's one of those things where that's what football's place in American society is, is to really reinforce those values of loyalty and fealty and 
being the good soldier, as it were. And and that's really why you see football become such a proxy for war and for militarization, because that's how it's framed. And that's, you know, that's the world that coaches are coming up in. And the reason you see that conservative nature pass along the generations is the guys who become coaches are the guys who are really embedded with those coaches of previous generations who are really just passing it on right to them. Um, so when you get a guy like Spurrier who completely does break the mold, it's something to really cherish because you don't see it as much. Even somebody who breaks the mold like a Mike Leach is somebody who's definitely very against paying players themselves. It, it's it's interesting to see how that dichotomy plays out because in certain aspects, there's a very standard issue line that gets played and that line is no thank you. Right, Absolutely. Well, I think that's probably it for me on that kind of subject. Um, would Zach, did you have anything else? No, I think we um, we hit on everything that's really been there for me. Um, so, yeah, thank you again for indulging me, John, as well as everybody out there listening. Um, hopefully you found some of this interesting and we didn't belabor some points we've hit in previous podcasts too much. Thank you again for another wonderful hour or so of getting to talk college football, John. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. It's one of the highlights of my week getting to actually sit down and do this. So we we both really enjoy getting to do this. We really appreciate everyone out there who um, listens uh, either every week or maybe some of the new listeners that have come on board recently. We really appreciate it. We're always open on social media forums to discuss these topics further if you ever have any questions or if you ever have any topics that you want us to hit on um, in future installments, hit us up and let us know. Certainly. We always love the feedback. Just once again, thanks to everybody out there. We're here every Wednesday morning, so we will talk to you next week. Have a wonderful one, everyone.